We're joined by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It's Legally Speaking. Good morning, Michael. How you doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. It is. What's on our agenda today? Well, I think the first thing on the agenda is the annual report uh, that just came out from the B.C. Provincial Court. And it was the annual report for 2020 and 2021. It was just released. Uh, and there are a number of interesting things in it that I think people should uh, be aware of. Um, first of all, as some background in terms of well, what is the provincial court, we've got, of course, uh, three layers of or levels of court in British Columbia, provincial court, where the judges and judicial justices are appointed provincially, and then the BC Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal, where the judges are appointed federally. So those are the three layers of court or levels of court we have in BC. The provincial court in BC uh, deals with, to give you some idea, mm-hmm. uh, 95% of all criminal cases are dealt with in provincial court. Uh, so the overwhelming majority of criminal cases are dealt with there, other than things like uh, murder or other cases that are involving jury trials, which are in Supreme Court, but all the other ones are in provincial court. Uh, the court also deals with family law matters, other than things that involve uh, divorce or some division of property issues, uh, which have to be in Supreme Court. Uh, youth court, small claims matters, so those would be claims uh, over $5,001. Below that, it's this thing called a civil resolution tribunal. Yes. It's kind of an online dispute thing, up to 35000 And then it also deals with uh, traffic tickets and bylaw infractions, that kind of thing. So that's the scope of what they do. So some of the interesting things in their report uh, – are a function of what's happened as a result of COVID and how Hmm. things have changed during this period of time. One of the interesting statistics in the report is for that time period, 2020, 2021, 77% of all of the court appearances were what they described as technology enabled, which means essentially one of the parties was appearing by MS Teams, by telephone, uh, in some other Uh, means other than appearing in person. Uh, And that's a major shift over a relatively short period of time. Um, So that was one of the statistics that really stood out for me. Uh, It also appears that that change is uh, having some efficiency uh, benefits in terms of cost. Um, The report uh, indicates, uh, for example, that they had a reduction uh, in travel expenses of $1.48 million dollars. uh, against a uh, $442,000 expenditure in IT systems. So they're spending, they spent money on MS Teams and faster internet connections for the uh, judges, uh, but they saved uh, a significant amount of money, uh, over a million dollars in terms of travel. Uh, because previously you would have had judges doing circuits and traveling around the province, uh, and now much more of that's being done. Uh, online. So in addition to some efficiency savings, uh, there's a clear cost savings, which we can see in the report. Um, uh, another uh, statistic in there, which I thought was interesting, was that there was a decrease in the number of cases overall. Uh, to give you some idea of the scope of cases in provincial court, uh, the uh, number of cases during the time period initiated was just over 80,000. And, and that represented a decrease of about 26% from the previous uh, report uh, as a function, largely it's expected of COVID and what impact that had on uh, various cases that were winding up in the court system. Um, 
I, I should say in that regard that, uh, at least anecdotally, it would appear that the, that trend may be reversing itself. Some areas appear to be extremely busy, including um, family law matters with uh, disputes arising, perhaps as a function of people being um, cooped up together during the uh, period of uh, uh, COVID isolation. So I yes. don't know whether that trend will continue, but uh, that was an interesting statistic uh, in the report. Um, one of the other statistics there uh, was uh, dealing with and referencing a, a system that was set up prior to COVID called the Justice Center. And the idea with the Justice Center um, is to allow uh, remote matters to be dealt with by judicial justices who would hear things like search warrant applications um, uh, or uh, bail hearings being done uh, remotely. Uh, and uh, the number of those is, uh, I think, quite uh, uh, informative. Uh, for the reporting period, for example, the, the Justice Center dealt with 17,682 bail hearings, so hearings to determine if somebody would be held in custody, which is a very significant number uh, dealt with by the Justice Center uh, alone. Uh, and during that same time period as well, the Justice Center, the judicial justice, has dealt with more than 24,000 applications for search warrants. Uh, so a very significant number there as well. Yes. Oh, are you able to hear me? Okay? Yeah, I'm getting yeah. A, a little, okay, very good. Yeah. Um, so that, that that is to say the Justice Center was established prior to COVID, uh, but it's taken on an additional uh, burden of work that otherwise would have been done uh, in person. Um, for example, with bail hearings, uh, there was previously the norm would have been, uh, at least when uh, court was in session during the regular week, would be when somebody was arrested, if there was to be a bail hearing to determine if they were going to be released, the norm would have been to, like in Victoria, bring the person physically to the courthouse mm -hmm. uh, where a judge would have heard the uh, bail hearing there. Um, as a function of COVID and an effort to minimize the need for transportation of prisoners and have people um, physically there, many more of those are now being dealt with uh, remotely by judicial justices through the Justice Center. And so that is how it is. We've got well more than 17,000 bail hearings being uh, conducted using uh, video conferencing or uh, even a telephone uh, connection. Um, and so uh, I thought the report was, would be uh, of interest to people to give you some idea just of the scale and scope of the number of cases that are being uh, dealt with, a very high uh, number, uh, despite the uh, COVID-related uh, reduction, yeah. uh, and to give some idea of the uh, changes that have uh, taken place technologically uh, and some of the impacts those have had uh, trying to accom accommodate uh, COVID. Uh, I also must say I smile as I read the report. Uh, one of the other financial figures that was there, in addition to the uh, travel savings, was that the uh, court has uh, underspent uh, to the tune of $30,000 on judicial attire, uh, which caused <laughs> me to smile. When I was um, uh, articling my, uh, many years ago now, my principal got appointed as a provincial court judge just before I was finished. And when I was off uh, picking up my uh, barrister's robes, uh, the uh, Per, the uh, tailor who was making them said, oh, yes, these are the robes for your principal over here. So I walked over and had a look at these things, and they were uh, very thick and hardy um, uh, <laughs> material made out of some kind of, uh, no doubt, petroleum product. And uh, the explanation was that the 
uh, budget for judicial robes for the provincial court, at least at that time, was very modest. And unless somebody was prepared to pay the extra, they got the polyester, super thick, well-wearing robes. So you can uh, rest assured that the uh, the provincial court is not uh, overspending uh, in terms of uh, judicial uh, attire. Uh, and even if uh, somebody winds up with a uh, judicial appointment, uh, you uh, might want to uh, uh, save a few extra dollars if you want to get the uh, the more comfortable robe. So if you're in court and you see a judge with a uh, a hearty, well-wearing set of robes, uh, that's a function of the uh, the uh, thrifty nature of the uh, the provincial court. Very well. That's uh, good advice to take, although we cannot select our judge from time to time. So if we do notice and don't like what we see, perhaps we should just pretend we didn't notice. There it is. <laughs> Michael Mulligan, <laughs> legally speaking on CFAX 1070. We will continue our conversation coming up right after this commercial break. Don't go anywhere. Legally speaking continues on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, the next item on the agenda, and I'm sure this could be a frightening prospect for many folks, you get arrested. One of the things that, given certain conditions being present, you may have to submit to is a strip search. Surely that there are, there are very specific rules around that. How does it all work? Yeah, thankfully there are a few guardrails there. Uh, the a uh, starting point is that if the police have reasonable grounds to believe you've committed a criminal offense, they can arrest you. And if they arrest you, uh, the police are permitted uh, to conduct a search to determine whether somebody's got, for example, weapons or means of escape, right, a knife in their back pocket or something. Yes. They're also permitted uh, to conduct a search for evidence of the offense for which they have arrested somebody. And that's an important thing to remember. So let's say, for example, they were arresting somebody for, um, I don't know, a, a warrant for failing to show up in a small claims court proceeding, mm-hmm. right? Well, there wouldn't be much evidence you're going to be searching for in that circumstance, right? What what possibly are you looking for? Uh, but the, the rub comes when, for example, you're arresting somebody for possession of drugs, right, or, or trafficking in drugs. Uh, that would afford the police some authority to, at common law, to conduct a search of the person's uh, person uh, and even some of their surroundings uh, to see if there are drugs there. Yes. But what about when you're doing more than that, a strip search? Uh, and the uh, Supreme, Court, uh, Supreme Court of Canada case uh, dealing with that uh, came out recently and, and reinforced some of the principles that apply to that kind of a even more intrusive search, because most Police searches are going to be, you know, patting somebody down or checking their pockets, that kind of thing, to see whether they've got a, you know, knife in their pocket or a handcuff key or something. Yes. Uh, so, in order to have authority to conduct a strip search, the police need to have, first of all, the grounds to arrest somebody, but they must then also have reasonable grounds to believe uh, that it's necessary to conduct a strip search. Uh, which is sort of one additional layer up. And furthermore, when they're conducting the search, it must be conducted in a manner which is reasonable. Uh, And so the reasonable requirement would include things like not to, unless there's some really good justification, be doing it in public, right? That's occurred. Um, And so the case that the Supreme Court of Canada just uh, dealt with was an example of where uh, the police did have reasonable grounds to conduct the strip search. And those were provided because the person was being arrested based on uh, informant information that they, he was dealing drugs and kept drugs on his person. 
When he was arrested, he was found at a table with drugs on them. His pants were partially down, uh, and the police officer observed him reaching around to the back of his pants at the time of the arrest. Hmm. And so those details provided clearly uh, evidence to suggest the possibility that this fellow who was being arrested uh, had concealed uh, drugs around his buttocks, right? Yes. And so that's the kind of uh, evidence that would be necessary to justify the uh, police conducting a strip search, which is what they did in that case. So the the point is that they are permitted in Canada, uh, but they cannot be sort of a matter of routine. Like if the police said, well, we just do that for everyone to see whether we can find any drugs, that would be not appropriate uh, or permissible constitutionally. But if they have that additional reasonable grounds to believe that they were, there's going to be evidence of the offense for which they are arresting the person, uh, which would be located uh, by virtue of a strip search where the person's got their pants partially undone and they're reaching around their backside, um, they're going to have authority to do it. But when they conduct it, they also need to take care that they're doing it in an appropriate and dignified fashion unless there's some very good justification uh, otherwise. So that would mean doing it in a private setting, not in the you know, parking lot uh, or, or something of that sort. So the Supreme Court of Canada in the case uh, on that evidence I just mentioned found that that was justified, uh, but um, they uh, reiterated uh, that there are special requirements for uh, that kind of a search, and they can't be done simply uh, in every case. Interesting. Next uh, case, a six-year sentence for possession of fentanyl and car fentanyl for the purpose of trafficking. Once upon a time, car fentanyl seemed to be the next big thing we were talking about. I haven't seen it mentioned very often. Is that because it became commonplace, or whatever happened with all that? Well, that's a good question. I think they use that. I think the intended use was for things like tranquilizing large animals. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's right up there with the, uh, what was that uh, horse medication that the uh, uh, anti-vaxxers oh. were taking? It was the... Uh, oh, the ivermectin. Uh, yeah, yeah the, that's correct. Yeah, the anti-parasitic, or the, the parasitic paralytic drug that is approved for parasite control, but not for, you know, COVID. That's about it. Yeah. So... This was a, there are a number of elements of this case that are interesting. It's one that comes out of uh, Nanaimo. Uh, the uh, accused name is very unfortunate. Uh, he uh, had a, a number of uh, described as very difficult childhood and abuse and so on, not helped along in current days by virtue of the fact that his last name is Virus. Uh, uh. And so <laughs> this involved uh, the uh, arrest of uh, and sentencing of Mr. Virus. Um, and there are several elements of this that I think are worth commenting on. First of all, it's a relatively local case. It's out of Denimo, right? Uh -huh. um, and the case uh, involved Mr. Virus being arrested um, at a shopping uh, center uh, for warrants, right? The police uh -huh. officer observed him, yeah. knew that he had outstanding warrants, um, and uh, arrested him. Uh, when they arrested him, they wound up finding a substantial amount of uh, drugs, uh, on uh, in a bag that he was carrying and on his person involving fentanyl, car fentanyl, substantial amounts of money. Uh, so they found a lot uh, on him. A and uh, the uh, case was also interesting because it involved what's called a gardener uh, uh, hearing. And what yeah. that means is this. It was a case where he was pleading guilty to possessing these drugs for the purpose of trafficking. But there was a disagreement between the Crown and counsel for Mr. Virus about 
his level of moral culpability because his position was, I wasn't the real owner of these drugs. I was holding the bag for somebody else. I'm a, a drug user, which was borne out by some of the evidence. Like he had, um, you know, spoons and uh, syringe and things of this sort on his person. Uh, he In the bag that he was caught with, there was some $20,000, but the evidence was that this fellow was homeless living in a park and eating at soup kitchens. Mm. Uh, and so his position was, yes, I had these things. I'm guilty. But I'm not a mid-level, sophisticated drug trafficker who would have $20,000 and own all of these drugs. I'm just a drug addict who had agreed to hold these things for the person who was their actual owner. And when there's agreement that somebody's guilty, like they're pleading guilty, yes, I did it. I possessed those things there for the purpose of trafficking. I'm guilty, so I'm pleading guilty. But there's a disagreement about something that would be an aggravating factor or a mitigating factor in sentencing, right? Because if you if the judge found, hey, this is the person who has sold and got $20,000 in cash and has all of these drugs and is just doing this for, uh, you know, enriching themselves, that might be viewed as more morally culpable and deserving of a longer sentence than if you had somebody who was, you know, a drug addict who was trying to, you know, do something to get a, a drugs to feed their addiction. Both serious, but they are different, right? And yeah. so where there's a agreement that somebody is guilty, there can still be a hearing, which would look to most observers like a trial, to determine, you know, what is the factual basis upon which the judge is to sentence the person, right? Are, are you, is the judge sentencing the person as, you know, Pablo Escobar's brother or something? <laughs> or are you sentencing the person as you know, drug addict living in the park eating at soup kitchens who was uh, held out the possibility of uh, some drugs if he held a bag for somebody. Who who are you dealing with here, right? Yeah. Obviously, that's going to have some impact. And so that's why this kind of a hearing was conducted, right? That's how that kind of an issue is uh, is dealt with, right? Yeah. Uh, and so he testified and he gave that evidence about, he said, look, uh, you know, I'm a drug addict. I live in the park. I, I eat at soup kitchens. Um, uh, somebody I know, uh, who I know to be a drug dealer, asked me to hold this bag of uh, bag for them. I knew it had drugs, and I was expecting some drugs for my trouble. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately for me, the police saw me, arrested me for these warrants I had, and they found all of this money and so on in the uh, and all these drugs in the bag. I d I wasn't the owner; I was just the holder. Uh, and where there's that kind of a disagreement, the way it works is that just like in a criminal case where the Crown has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody is guilty, where the Crown is alleging some aggravating circumstance, right? Yes. The Crown would also need to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt on that kind of a hearing that we were talking about. And here, interestingly, the judge found that uh, he was not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt uh, that uh, this man was the actual owner of the cash and all of the drugs and paraphernalia and so on in the bag, hmm. right? He accepted that that would be inconsistent with, uh, you know, if you had all of that money, uh, you're probably not living in the park, right? And, and indeed, the police officer who was a, a drug expert testified that ordinarily you're not going to have a mid-level drug dealer with that amount of money homeless, right? They're going to probably have some place to live. Exactly. This money. Yeah, yeah. Now, despite that, uh, the uh, judge found that the person's moral culpability was still extremely high 
because of the real harm caused by fentanyl and carfentanil. And so even though the judge accepted that he wasn't the beneficial owner of the money and drugs, the judge looked at things including uh, the statistics about the very large number of people who are dying of overdoses from fentanyl and carfentanil. And that occurs because that occurs because the... Oh, oh. Oh, that's all right. Sorry, that, I, that, I, I hear something sorry. in the background. It sounds sorry like a team's that. meeting. <laughs> We're no, not in a trial, sorry. are we? Welcome to welcome to 2022. <laughs> <laughs> that's a constant. <sighs> um, and so even though he wasn't the owner of those things, his moral culpability was still extremely high I see. Uh, because uh, of the serious harm they caused. He was aware of that. And even though the judge accepted that he may well have just been the person holding the bag for the higher level drug dealer, uh, it was so harmful he was aware of that, despite those the fact that the aggravating circumstance wasn't proven by the crowd. Uh, the judge nonetheless uh, imposed a uh, jail sentence of six years on the man uh, because of the very serious harm uh, caused by these substances. Yes, uh, And it's another case in a long series of cases in British Columbia and from Vancouver Island which amount to very significant penitentiary sentences being imposed uh, for people who are trafficking in fentanyl and carfentanil because they are just so dangerous, right? Yes. The, 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 the amount of this substance necessary to kill you is so small uh, that when you have a illegal drug supply, the uh, active ingredient in fentanyl or carfentanil is mixed up with other things that are not as potent before it's sold, right? It's cut. But if that's not mixed exactly in the way somebody might have expected, they could wind up with a tiny clump of fentanyl or carfentanil, and, and they're dead. Um, it's just that potent. Um, and so that's why uh, we see this series of cases where judges are imposing these very long sentences whether that as the desired effect or not, it's hard to know, right? You know, one of the cases the judge pointed out, look, that might deter some people. It might not deter others. Um, you know, it's hard to know whether you're going to deter a drug addict who's risking their life every time they're using that substance from continuing an activity that uh, is already has the risk of killing them yeah. by threatening to send them to jail. But uh, there we are. Uh, the justice system is doing its best uh, but uh, even at, at that uh, rate, uh, we still lose more people every day uh, on average uh, to uh, drug overdoses, largely fentanyl and carfentanil, uh, yeah. than we have been losing to COVID. So a very serious problem, and that's uh, the outcome for Mr. Virus from Nanaimo. Michael Mulligan, Legally Speaking, the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. Pleasure as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe.